Hold me down, Lord, that I may uplift thee. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton, there was Stephen Sondheim and countless musicals. Though I would never try to play favorites, Sweeney Todd or Sunday in the Park with George, the musical of his to which I know every word to every single song is Into the Woods. Now, I hope you have seen either the Broadway version. I wore out my VHS recording taped from PBS's American Playhouse, the one with the incandescent Bernadette Peters. Or perhaps you've seen the movie version in 2014 where Meryl Streep makes another amazing witch. The soundtrack is worth owning and memorizing. Sondheim takes all of our favorite fairy tales and characters, Little Red Riding Hood, Jack and the Beanstalk, Cinderella and Rapunzel, princes and wicked witches, and he mashes them all up together and he sends them into the dark woods. Though this makes the musical sound light, made for children, like all fairy tales, it carries deep lessons about how to be human, what it is to be responsible, moral in a community. It contains deep lessons about our deepest fears and longings. The story follows the childless baker and his wife who followed the witch's instructions to collect four items for her. The cow is white as milk, the cape is red as blood, the hair is yellow as corn, and the slipper is pure as gold. Before she will reverse the curse, she is placed on their house, placed there to punish his father who stole magic beans from her garden years ago. From that start, the fairy tale characters are jostled together, they fall in love, cross one another, they make mistakes, they try to get what they want. The first act ends the way we think fairy tales should, happily ever after. But the second act is darker. People aren't so happy with happily ever after. The princes find settling down with Rapunzel and Cinderella a little dull. The baker's wife finds that having a child is not totally fulfilling. Jack keeps going back up the stalk to gather more and more gold, never satisfied. Suddenly, a giant invades their happily ever after. Tragedies occur, people die, and only a few are left trying to figure out how to fight a giant. All are hurting and angry and find themselves thrown together trying to figure out what to do. And they launch into the poignant song, Your Fault. As each character blames another 
and seeks to avoid blame for him or herself. The song bounces from character to character to character as they toss the hot potato of blame around the circle. Suddenly, the witch interrupts, making clear everyone there has made a mistake and they are up against a midnight deadline. She notes that though they could come up with a solution, what they're really interested in is finding fault. No, of course, what really matters is the blame. Someone you can blame. Fine, if that's the thing you enjoy, placing the blame. If that's the aim, give me the blame. No, of course, what really matters is the blame. Someone you can blame. And doesn't that just get at something about us? Not just in our culture now, but deep, deep down in our humanity. When things go wrong, we want to point the finger. We want to find someone to blame. We do this to people who are poor or homeless. We blame them for laziness or for lack of planning. Our prison population is soared for many reasons, but partly because of our need to blame and punish. When the economy soars, too often we point to immigrants. We even find, we even seek to find blame when people are sick. When someone gets cancer, people often whisper, didn't she smoke? If someone has a heart attack or a stroke, we comment on their waistline or their lifestyle. We humans love blame, love to pinpoint the fault when things go wrong because it helps us feel in control and it removes the finger that might otherwise point at us. If people are poor because they don't work hard enough, then we don't have to look at our scandalous minimum wage, our too thin safety net. If someone falls terribly ill and suffers and we can't draw a line between that and a cause, then we have to face that life might not be in our control, that we too might face tragedy no matter how good we are, no matter how many plans we make. And if we understand all of that, we better understand today's story of the man born blind. As soon as Jesus and his disciples see him, the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned? Later, after Jesus has healed the man with spit and dirt and mud, the man is beset by neighbors and Pharisees wondering just how his eyes were opened and who did it. How could a sinner like him now have sight? Who would heal on the Sabbath? Surely not a man from God. In fact, this man, Jesus, must be a sinner too. When the man who now sees dares to challenge this notion he is driven out, driven out of the community as a man born entirely in sins, they say.
in the face of a man suffering, a man born blind, a man forced to beg, the first reaction is to wonder, whose fault is it? But Jesus says immediately, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But the English translators of the Bible couldn't quite, couldn't quite leave this blindness without providing a reason for it. So the next sentence has Jesus saying, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. So he's not blind because of sin, but because God's power needs someone to work on, which is a monstrous ethical conclusion. But in fact, Jesus doesn't give a reason for his blindness. In the Greek, he says nothing like that. He seems to accept that creation is just, well, broken. Rather, what he says after saying that neither the man nor the parents sinned is this, but in order that God's work might be revealed in him, it is necessary for us to work the words of the one who sent me. Or as another translation puts it, you're asking the wrong questions, looking for someone to blame. Instead, look at what God can do. You're asking the wrong questions. You're looking for someone to blame. Instead, look at what God can do. In other words, don't look for blame. Don't look for sin. Look for God's actions in our lives and in the world. They focus on the man's blindness and then his ability to see. What they miss is who Jesus is, light of the world. In seeking to shift blame and find cause and avoid any shame themselves, they miss the point. We miss the point. You know who doesn't miss the point? the man who now sees. Over and over again, he is asked what happened. Over and over again, he describes his experience. The man called Jesus made money, spread it on my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and I washed and I received my sight. Or he put mud on my eyes, then I washed and now I see. Or one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And throughout this entire story, for much of which Jesus is absent, the man grows in his relationship and understanding and trust of Jesus, going from calling him this man called Jesus to he is a prophet, to confessing, Lord, I believe. The blind man now sees. The religious authorities from Jesus' disciples to the Pharisees are blind because they focus on the wrong things, more interested in sin and blame than on the God of healing and light. You see, in the Gospel of John, sin is not the things you get wrong. It's the stuff that keeps you out of relationship with Jesus. 
The blind man comes to believe because he was blind. And now he sees. He has been brought from dark to light, been brought from the scarcity of begging into the abundant life that Jesus promises. This new abundant life is seen in the man's joy, his ability to poke fun at the Pharisees, wondering why they keep asking him the same questions, wanting to hear his story over and over again. He sort of mockingly, funnily asks them, do you also want to become his disciples? We see this new abundant life in his ability to recognize the shepherd's voice. Jesus said to him, you have seen the Son of Man and the one speaking with you is he. And his response is, Lord, I believe. What's amazing here is not that a man was born blind, not even that that man gains his sight. What's amazing is the power of God in our lives, the light of the world joining us in this world. Not so that we might feel guilt and shame over our sins, not so we might have it all worked out, not so that there might never again be tragedy or loss or grief. What's amazing is that the light of the world joined us in this world so that we might know God, might know abundant life, might open our eyes and say, Lord, I believe. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.